Well, this morning's Bible reading is taken from Genesis 3, and that's on page 2. I guess one thing just to be looking for as we read through this passage, uh, pay close attention to the engagement between the woman and the serpent and how their conversation goes. I guess particularly in comparison to what God said back in 2 verse 17. So Genesis 3 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walk in the garden the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins 
and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out of his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, we're going to have a look at that passage in a moment. But before we do, let me mention that at the end of the service, or the sermon rather, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things we've been thinking about. And I want you to know that now so you can be thinking that the opportunity will arise and you can be thinking of what questions you might like to ask when it does. Another thing to mention is there's a sermon outline in your service sheet, which you can use if that's of use. But otherwise, let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. Over the last few weeks, we've been seeing how your word is powerful and that when you speak, your creation comes into existence. And yet today we see how your people have rebelled against you and ignore your word and rather would choose to listen to the word of your creation instead of the uncreated creator. We pray, Lord, as we reflect on these things, we'd see how you uh, resolve to bring about your plan and purpose even through the fall. Amen. Well, who's lying and who's telling the truth? Back in Genesis 2, verse 16 to 17, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now last time God spoke, he said, let there be light. And that which did not exist came into existence. God's word has the power to cause creation to materialise out of nothing. And there's every reason to believe God's word spoken in Genesis 2 shares that same power. But then when we come to Genesis 3, we have an alternative opinion. And this view is presented by the serpent. In 3 verse 1, the serpent is described as shrewd and having been made by God. This means the serpent is part of God's creation, a creature. And the serpent contradicts God's word. Or does he? On first glance, given what God has achieved through his word, and the fact that the serpent is merely part of God's creation, we may immediately dismiss the serpent and assume it is God who speaks the truth. 
But on a closer look at Genesis 3, is it quite that simple? For example, have a look at what the serpent says to the woman in verse 4. But the serpent says to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Is the serpent telling the truth? After all, the man and woman do not die after eating from the tree. Also notice what happens in verse 22. God confirms what the serpent said. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Is this problematic? What are we to make of all this? All we need to do is look at the conversation that takes place between the serpent and the woman in a little bit more detail. The first thing that's worth highlighting immediately is that the serpent never tells the woman to eat the fruit from the tree. Instead, the serpent raises questions introduces doubt into the mind of the woman. And this is all done with a great level of subtlety. The first comment the serpent makes is a question. So halfway through verse 1, he says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice the serpent refers to God as just that. Since this episode in the garden began, God has been referred to each time as the Lord God. It's a more personal address. We saw last week, capital L-O-R-D refers to God as Yahweh. But now when the serpent speaks about God, he adopts the more distant title of God. It's followed by a query of God's generosity. The serpent asks if God has commanded them not to eat of any tree. Already in this initial question, the serpent has said enough to begin to cause the woman to question God. This could be seen in her reply in verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. What God actually said was, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden but the woman reduces this slightly removing the word every we made the fruit of the trees notice as well the woman follows the serpent's example and refers to god in a less personal form not speaking of him as the lord further still the woman continues to query god's generosity because she suggests she will die for merely touching the tree that's in the centre of the garden. The serpent speaks next. 
verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's a certain ambiguity to what the serpent says. It could be the effect of, certainly you will not die. Or it could be, it's not certain that you will die. Could even be an appropriate correction to what the woman said. Could the serpent be saying, you'll not surely die for just touching the tree. Nevertheless, the serpent uses the opportunity to suggest there's a hidden divine motive. God has commanded the trees not to be eaten from because he does not want their eyes to be opened. Have a look at 3 verse 6. It says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And it was a delight to the eyes. And the tree was de- de- desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. Now then compare that with Genesis 2 verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God has made a garden full of trees, pleasant to the sight and good for food. And now the woman sees the prohibited tree as being no different from any of the other trees that the Lord God had planted. Also in the phrase, the woman saw that the tree was good, it brings to mind Genesis 1. And creation, when it was only for God who had the prerogative to evaluate his creation, now the woman uses the same phrase to refer to the prohibited tree. The woman covets the desire to be like God and have her eyes opened and so eats. She then gives to her husband, who, it turns out, has been there all the time, but has remained silent. The man also eats, having listened to his wife's voice, and not the voice of God. You can see a reference back in Genesis 3, verse 17. The thing that they had been promised and what they desired was that their eyes would be opened. This immediately happens. But it's not what they expected. It's a great disappointment. Their eyes are open to the fact that they are naked. Up until this point, this hadn't been a problem. In fact, In 2 verse 25, it speaks of how they felt no shame. But now their eyes are opened and they attempt to cover up their nudity. Up until this point, God has provided them with everything they've needed. But they take it apart upon themselves to attempt to inadequately 
cover up their private parts. Now it's worth highlighting the order in which our characters appear within each scene. So if you notice as we read through, the first scene begins with the serpent. Here the serpent represents creation. The serpent then speaks to the woman. The woman then gives the fruit to the man who takes and eats. All of the wild God's word and God is forgotten about or ignored. And what we have is the creation order turned on its head. If you remember back in Genesis 1, we saw how God created the world. He gave it to man and woman to rule over under God's rule. God, man and woman, creation. But when the serpent represents creation, the creation or serpent comes deceives the man and woman, and God's forgotten. It's an act of decreation, an inversion of creation, how it was intended. In the second scene, God is walking in the garden, the cool of the day. And it leaves us with the impression that this was something that God did on a daily basis. However, it's never been mentioned before, and this is the first time we've become aware of it. The man and the woman are hiding. God had created the trees for the man to look at. They were pleasant to the sight. But now they become man's means to hide himself from God. So we begin with God, who calls man to explain why he's hiding. Man takes the opportunity to pass the blame to the woman... And he also blames God. It was the woman who gave me to be with me. The woman then passes the blame to the creature. Then in the final scene, God judges each in the order of the first scene. He begins with the serpent, then the woman, finally the man. Let's then make a few observations about God's judgments. The first thing to notice is that God only curses the snake and the ground. The woman and the man are punished, but not cursed. In verse 15, we read of an ongoing struggle between the serpent and the woman's offspring. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In this last phrase, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel, implies that the offspring will finally get the better of the serpent. This is a promise of one who will come, who will reverse the curse brought about by the serpent. We also see that both the woman and the man have their roles frustrated. The woman would have children, but it would be now painful. The man was given a bountiful garden to work and keep. But from now on, thorns and thistles would compete with the plants. 
The relationship between the man and the woman is frustrated. And eventually they will return to the ground out of which they were taken. But then Adam goes on to live 930 years. Which brings us back to our original question. Who is telling the truth? What we've begun to see is when you take a closer look at what the serpent says, we see he only speaks half-truths. And this is what makes them so seductive. But because they are half-truths, ultimately they do not deliver. We've already seen the serpent promise that their eyes would be open after eating the fruit. And their eyes were opened. But all it meant is that they were now aware of their nakedness. The serpent promised they would surely not die. But then if you compare chapter 2 in Genesis 3, you have chapter 2 described as a bounty of food provided by the creator. It's a garden that has a river that runs through it, watering it. There's access to the tree of life, and it has jewels, the kind that would later go on to decorate the Holy of Holies. They had the opportunity to walk with God in the cool of the day. But now they were to be driven out of God's presence, unable to take from the tree of life. Their efforts to grow food would be frustrated. They would be distanced from the life giver, the one who sustains life, the one who makes every provision. Even when he sends them out, it is he that provides them with clothes they need, now their eyes have been opened. They are outside of the presence of God, and that is as good as dead. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it only takes a moment of reflection of the world that we live in to see that all is not right. And as we come to Genesis 3, we see the reason why this world is not how it should be. As we reflect on these things, we're so grateful that you have put a plan into action in order to bring about the reverse of the fall. That your plan is to redeem the world and your people so that the curse might be taken away and that your people will one day dwell with you in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the beginning that there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things we've been thinking about tonight, uh, this morning. That has now arrived. So any questions or comments? Henry.
did God mean for the fall to happen? Excellent question. Okay, who who is that? Who who does he belong to? Henry. <laughs> Okay, did God mean for the fall to happen? That's an excellent question. It's a similar question. A similar question is, which is effectively the same question: Why did God put the tree in the garden? You know, if He did, didn't put the tree in the garden, the problem would have arisen. Now, the best way to explore this question is to think about what happens because of the tree being in there, because the fall happens, and because things um, pan out the way they do. One of the things that's really important is to know what Adam knew about God. And what Adam knew about God was actually quite restricted. So he knew that God had created the world, and he knew that he wasn't to eat from the tree. But after that, there's, there's not much more that he knew. Compare that to, for example, Moses. Now, Moses knows a lot more about God because God's spoken to him and has given him the Ten Commandments and the law. So a lot more has happened now at this point. But then take someone like David. He comes further in the story. He knows even more than Moses David knows there's going to be a king from his line and it will sit on the throne and be there, uh, be on the throne for eternity. Now, the reason Moses knows more more than Adam about God, I think as well, a better example for Moses, he knows about the Exodus because he took part in the Exodus. So God has demonstrated his power of creation as he's freed the um, Israelites from slavery against the great superpower that's Pharaoh. He's seen his mighty acts and those sorts of things. So what God has been able to do over a period of time is to reveal how he acts in creation and reveal his mighty power. Now, here's one of the funny things. I think we often get jealous of Moses, and we think, wouldn't it be great to be back where Moses was and to have seen the great, great, mighty acts of God, how he um, turned the river, uh, the river Nile to blood and caused the gnats and all that sort of stuff. And you think, wouldn't it be better to be one of the prophets who actually were able to engage with God one-to-one like Moses or have to seen David fight Goliath and the like? But actually... We're in a better position than Adam, David, and Moses. Because what we have is the full revelation revealed through Jesus Christ. Because God sent his son into the world so that we might know God as father. The first thing that Jesus says effectively is, I am God's son. And as he says he is God's son, he reveals that he's God the Father. So we know something about God that Moses didn't know, Adam didn't know, and David didn't know. In fact, none of the prophets did, because they longed to see what we know. 
also, when Jesus came, he died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended to the right-hand side. This is the funny thing about Peter, another person who we think it would have been great to have been because he walked alongside Jesus. But while he walked alongside Jesus, Peter didn't understand. It's one of his traits. He doesn't make sense of what he sees. It's only after Jesus dies, is raised again and ascended, that he can make sense and understand who Jesus is, why he came and what he did. Hence his his, uh, sermon at Pentecost. So what you begin to see is that because of the fall, God has revealed himself in a particular way. In a way that he wouldn't have been able to reveal himself if the fall hadn't have happened. So we now know that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, that Jesus, that God loves us so much that Jesus came to die on the cross, that he has risen from the dead and therefore we will be risen with him, and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and we sit with him now, and we will, we, we will go with him when he returns. Now, a hypothetical question is, how could God have revealed all that to us if the fall hadn't taken place? So bearing all that in mind, I think the answer to your question is, yes, God did plan it, because it's through that plan of the fall that God has revealed his graciousness, his mighty power, his forgiveness, who he is as Trinity, and revealing the plans for the new heavens and the new earth. So that's a brief answer. Actually, it's a long answer, but it's only touching the surface. Is that okay? Another question. Yes, Susie. Uh, yeah, I'm just Okay, just to repeat it for the recording. Um, so in verse 15, it says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. How would you understand the serpent's offspring? Um, at one level, we could, I guess, just understand it fairly superficially that there's going to be this ongoing battle between um, women and, or humans and snakes. Which kind of works, because they're not our favourite animal. Interestingly, um, interesting later on, the serpent becomes an unclean animal. So it is considered an unclean animal. So something that's to be avoided by the Israelites. Um, but I guess, ultimately, probably on a more thorough look, I guess it's just that sort of idea that the serpent has brought about the curse. That's brought a frustration to creation. And so how is that going to be resolved? And it's, it's more to do with 
I guess the focus is more on the offspring of the woman in that that's where the hope will be found. Um, so I think from a poetic sense, though, there's that sense of the effect that you've, that's been, you've caused through your deception, the serpent, is going to be a constant frustration for the offspring of the woman. But one day, and there'll be that battle, as it were, but one day the offspring of the woman will prevail. Is that okay? I mean, another thing that's... So some people... Some people think in terms of um, Genesis 3 verse 15 is simply, it's just saying snakes and women don't get on. Um, other people see it as a um, sort of the first example of the gospel. You know, this is talking about the Christ who will come and crush the serpent's head as it were. Um, so I guess it's, it's which one of those do you go with? Another option is it's both, but it isn't until later on that the connection's made. As in, the first reader of Genesis 3 won't have been sat there and thinking, oh, it's Jesus, isn't it? You know, the, the information wasn't available to him. Okay, time for one last question. Yes. Good question. Okay, let me just repeat that for the recording. So, obviously here we've got Genesis 3, the fall's taken place, and then when we go to Revelation 21-22, we get this idea that God will dwell with his people, um, and they will be back in the presence of God. But the question is, we kind of know that it's not going to happen again, but what is it that will prevent um, the fall taking place again in 21 uh, from Revelation 21 and 22 and onward. Um, I think that kind of partly takes us back to Henry's question, in the sense that a lot has happened to un, um, as God's plan has unfolded. And that's involved us having a full revelation of who God is, but also how God has worked through us. So obviously once Jesus dies rises and ascends the next thing he does is he sends his spirit to us and having sent the spirit to us the spirit convicts us that we are sinners and convicts us that the devil's time's up and convicts us that God or Christ is who he says he is and that God is our father so in Jeremiah 31 it talks about God giving the people a new heart and that's talking about the spirit so they'll no longer think the way they do 
uh, in rebellion, but they will be, they will have this eagerness to follow him and do his will. Then, so as Christians, we see that in our sanctification. So although we don't see it fully now, we are being sanctified. It's the process of the Holy Spirit working on us and changing us so that we're in line with God's way of thinking. But then when Jesus returns or when we die and we meet him, then we come to our glorification. And our glorification is when that sanctification is complete and we become perfect. So that's when we have these promises abound in. Our desire and our mind will be in line with his. Our desire will be to do his desires and therefore there won't be um, a desire to rebel against him. Is that? Yeah, cool. Okay, we'll stop there. Uh, we've had three. That's normally what we uh, go with. We're going to have a moment's reflection in a minute. Just slightly continuing thinking on the lines that we've been thinking but before we do we're going to stand and sing how deep the father's love for us